You're listening to Culture Matters, a podcast of the Village Church. This is David Roark filling in for Josh Patterson while he's away on sabbatical. On today's episode, the author of The Big Disconnect, Catherine Steiner Adair, will join Adam Hawkins and me to talk about the dangers of technology and how it is changing us and our family. Then in our slow take segment, Jen Wilkin, Braden Taylor, and I will take on the topic of Thanksgiving, looking at its history, its place in the Christian life, and practical ways to enter into it this year. We're now here with Dr. Catherine Steiner Adair. She is a clinical psychologist, consultant, author, and speaker. She's the author of the award-winning book, The Big Disconnect, Protecting Childhood and Family Relationships in the Digital Age. It's a book that uh, not only has it had a profound impact on my life and I know Adam's life, who's in this conversation with me, but lots of other people at the Village Church, um, staff members, members of the church. Um, It's been an important book for a lot of us. So really excited about this conversation. Um, Welcome to the show, Catherine. Oh, thank you so much. Hello, Catherine. This is Adam Hawkins. And um, this book came to me, The Big Disconnect, probably a little over a year ago um, at a time when Mm -hmm. I was starting to evaluate technology in my own life. My wife is a photographer and um, I was looking through some family pictures one day and I noticed that I was in the background of just about every picture staring at my phone, my iPhone, and it caused, it made me realize um, I'm missing it. I'm missing, um, I'm missing the, the, really the youth of my children. Um, and so, and, and so since then I've really put boundaries on my phone, but, but being introduced to your book, I realized that not only was I in crisis in my house, but that really we, we are in an age of crisis as it relates to our screens, as it relates to our phones. And so, um, yeah, I love that your book addresses this, and um, you you say in your book that this is a major issue for our lives, and specifically families. Um, could you talk about that um, and how we are living in this age of digital crisis? Well, you know, I think what's so hard to step back from, and it's a very poignant story about how looking through family photos gave you the perspective of stepping back. Um, it's so hard to step back from our use of technology because in just nine years, particularly with smartphones, we've become so psychologically, neurologically, and, and logistically dependent on this new form of technology that it's almost hard sometimes to remember what it was like before we had it. And the thing that's so challenging is that what we call our smartphones are not really phones, they're computers. Mm-hmm. And we are now just beginning to have a lot of research about how the human brain interacts with these devices. And uh, it's extremely challenging because they're stimulants and they affect our short-term memory, our long-term memory. They affect our abilities to hear one another, to empathize with one another. And we think that we are in control of ourselves when, when really we're at such an early stage of adaptation. We're more like mice in a, uh, on a wheel, you know, jumping at the, the ping of the sound of our phone. So, you know, I wrote the book sort of to help people figure out how to outsmart your smartphone because if you aren't thoughtful about how you use it, they, they very much are depleting kids' experiences of their parents, parents' experiences of their children. And, you know, it's so ironic because on the one hand, these devices are phenomenal. Never before has it been so delightfully possible to connect to the people you love the most 24-7 across time zones. We can face chat. We can Skype. You know, we can text. I love doing it with my kids. They're older and all over the place. But at the same time, the parenting paradox of all of this is that these devices are also really straining our family relationships and getting in the way of healthy family connections. Yeah, and one of the one of the other things that you mentioned, I mean, I think it's obvious that they're affecting us in, in a number of different ways. But one of the things you talk about, and there's been some stuff written on this as of lately. Um, Andrew Sullivan did a really good piece on this. Yeah, but you a beautiful state, piece. Yes, you state that technology is making us feel more isolated and sad and less empathetic and human. Can you talk about that? Why, mm-hmm. why is that? And, and how is that happening? Why, is, why are our devices, why is technology doing this to us? Well, because we're having digitally mediated 
connections to people. You know, there, an emoticon, a smiley face is not the same thing as somebody wrapping their arms around you or, or somebody being face-to-face saying to you, I love you. Yeah, I miss you. Um, and and what is what happens is that we really become distanced from each other when we use technology to communicate. You know, I can texting is a fabulous form of communication because we can text. You know, when it would be appropriate to talk on the phone. You know, kids say, "Well, texting is great. I can text to my parents, you know, in class when I'm not supposed to be on my device. My teacher never sees, you know, whatever." But um, the problem with texting as a form of communication is it eliminates the two most essential forms of human communication, the two most essential tools we have. It eliminates tone of voice, and it is our tone of voice that gives the meaning to our words. So, texting, "I love you." It's very different from hearing, I love you. I love you. Do you know how much I love you? Like that. And then the other thing that texting eliminates, which is very critical for human relationships, is our ability to read social cues, our ability to see the impact of our words on the other person. And what's so critical is this is the first generation of children growing up at a time where just at the age developmentally, where they need to develop their social-emotional intelligence and they develop their capacity for deep friendship and they begin to really learn how to empathize and understand people who are very different from them or be accountable for their behaviors. They prefer texting often to talking. So we're actually seeing a decline in young adults' capacity for empathy, for listening, for self-regulation. And they really, you know... We behave extremely differently when we are texting or emailing than we do when we, when we are face-to-face. And this is another huge misconception that people have. We think we are the same person face-to-face as who we are when we're online, but that's not true. When we are anonymous, we will say and do things that we often would never do or say face-to-face, and we will go places online and connect to people online that we would not do face-to-face or in the real world. So we have to get much more savvy about knowing that we are in a different zone of connection. You know, I I love the way um, in the book that you're able to show just what you're describing, those kind of direct – the direct impact, you know, the personal impact of texting and and the anonymity and the uh, of, mm-hmm. of of um, you know being on a smartphone, but also kind of this new Twitter age of everything's got to be expressed in short pithy statements that that really right. are devoid of substance. But there's you also do this beautiful job in the book of showing the kind of indirect ways that um, that that being glued to a screen um, affects our relationships. And I just wanted Mm -hmm. to elaborate on that and kind of uh, before we get into the specifics of how it affects families, just say one of the things I've noticed since I've unplugged from uh, my phone especially is just how addicted everybody else is and how it has such a dehumanizing sort of effect. So a couple of examples is I, I don't know now since I've become unglued from my phone, I'm not sure that I've been in a meeting professional or social where I'm not competing for um, the attention of somebody else in their phone right um, and it yeah. has it has this way of making uh, of really making me feel less important you know than than the screen than than the screen that's in front of that person and I, um, you know I think of this example often I lived in New York for a long time and almost everybody has their headphones in and I remember this happened several times but people would be screaming you know singing very loudly the lyrics to a song mm-hmm. and I, I had this really weird kind of disassociative I don't, I don't know what it was but just this experience of thinking this person is demanding that I be a part of their right. world without actually letting me into their world I don't know if that makes sense mm-hmm. To say that, or giving you a choice, or giving you exactly a choice, right. any choice. Same thing with the person who just sits and you know takes a pause mm-hmm. from a conversation to look down at their phone. It's like they kind of demand that you 
you, I don't know, are, are beholden to their other conversation that they're choosing to have, but you have no idea what's happening in that conversation. You're not a part of it. And so it really does have this dehumanizing effect. I mean, could you maybe talk a little bit about those indirect sort of um, consequences? Well, we've created new cultural norms in just nine years that are just they're profoundly rude. Yeah. And, and, and they're very stressful. You know, it's awful to be sitting on a bus or on an airplane next to somebody who's having any kind of conversation with somebody else who's not present, but particularly if it's lewd or inappropriate or, you know, talking about bonuses and raises or, you know, naming people's names. I mean, we become disinhibited and we lose our filters. Mm. And, and in a way, I mean, it, it, it's a kind of arrogance in a certain kind of way. You know, who cares if you're there? I'm having my conversation. And... And and that objectifying and you know dehumanizing of other people is very dangerous behavior. Mm. Um, yeah, part of of civic society is do unto others as you would wish they would do unto you, and and always you know be aware of of anybody whose space you share, and and you know that has rapidly dissolved. And and when it comes to families. This behavior is particularly harmful because children feel like they do not matter mm. to their parents. You get in the car and you start talking on the Bluetooth phone with somebody else, and the message you're giving your children is they don't matter, they're boring, you're not interested in them, you don't care whether they want to listen to this half conversation or not, and you'd rather talk to anybody else on the phone than you would to them. That's a horrible way for kids to feel. And they told me that whether they were four or 24. Kids of all ages talked about how hurtful it is. You know, 20-year-old college kids coming home from college, excited to see their parents. It's been a couple of months. They get in the car. Kids would say to me, you know, young adults, yeah, my mom, my dad, we'd get in the car and they'd ask the big questions, you know, like, did you really break up with your boyfriend or how do you do on your big paper and you start answering because that's what you do. You talk about that stuff when you see your parents and you're all excited. And then three minutes later, they take a call to make a golf game, a dinner reservation. Are you kidding me? That is so hurtful. That makes me so mad. I can't believe it. Then I don't want to talk to them. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're talking specifically here about sort of the relational component of technology yeah. and, and Adam and Adam and I before this were even talking about even in our work here at the village church and as Christians this seems all the more important in the sense that our faith is built on the idea that God became flesh as Jesus Christ to live among us and to have relationship with us and um, it's funny that we we personally feel that we, sh you know, it, it's sad that we're more guilty probably than anyone in regard to doing these things when it seems counterintuitive to the very thing that we're really supposedly yeah. living our lives for, which is mm -hmm. very interesting. But I, I want to talk specifically about, so that's the relational kind of component to it, the incarnational component, maybe even you could say, but let's talk the the science about technology, uh -huh. how specifically, uh -huh. like scientifically, you're thinking about the brain, you're thinking about other things emotionally, how is technology affecting specifically young children? Because I think a lot of us, even yeah. in, in our setting, have a lot of younger children, and I think that this is a topic of conversation that we're having quite often. So here's what we see. when ch The first thing you do when you, you, you know, with every new baby, the very first parenting challenge is to figure out how to calm this baby down when they're fussy. You know, are they hungry? Are they wet? You know, are they chilly? Um, you know, and no, they just need soothing. So for, we rock them, we sing to them, we coo to them. When they get a little older, we play rhyming games. And, and it is our tone of voice and our physical comfort that they internalize. Over and over and over in the checkout line, in long carpools, when they have to wait, when they're frustrated, we teach them how to calm down. And that then forms the foundation for their ability to go to preschool or kindergarten and to learn because you have to be able to self-regulate and calm yourself down and wait your turn to be called on or deal with the frustration of learning how to zip a zipper or ride a bicycle or do math or whatever it is. And what we see when children are handed 
technology, an iPhone, an iPad, a mini iPad, uh, any screen, at every transition in the checkout line, while diapers being changed, what we see is we are raising a very different crop of children because instead of learning how to self-soothe, they are being given stimulants. A smartphone is a stimulant. Babies will calm down instantly if you hold a stimulant over their head. But that's a very different coping mechanism. So what we see in kids who spend a lot of time on high-paced, very fast uh, tech games, even some educational games are still stimulants. You match lowercase a to uppercase a on on an iPad, and you get sparkles, you get butterflies, you get fairy dust. And all those are neurological stimulants that reward children, which is why they stay engaged for so long. But the problem is it doesn't transfer to real life. Teachers don't usually throw sparkles out at their children. And what teachers are experiencing in five and six-year-olds today, in my research, at 30 schools, 500 teachers around the country, is that kids can't tolerate frustration. They interrupt more. They're more impulsive. They want you to, quote, get them to the next level, give them the right answer faster. They're not as resilient. They, when they run out of an idea, they want you to tell them what to do because when you play a computer game, you don't learn how to go into your own imagination to, quote, get to the next level. The game does it for you. So we see children coming into learning at five, six, seven, all the way through high school with very different coping skills for learning, for creativity, for deep thinking. And the biggest, saddest thing that we see in young children who play too much computer games and don't play enough in their backyard, in their house, in their kitchen, doesn't matter where a child plays. What matters is that they play in the three-dimensional world, not on the screen, is that these children don't have the same rich capacity for what we call in education deep play. And deep play is the ability to create stories and create things in your own imagination. So this is so critical for all future learning, for your own intelligence, for your own brilliance. You know, you have to fall in love with your own imagination. And we see children falling in love with digital games that do all the imagining for them. Yeah, and something something real specific. You say that 30% of children under the age of three have TVs in their rooms. Then you also say that a third of Gen Y mothers let their two-year-olds play with their smartphones. So with, with kind of Even everything... more than that now. Wow. And so, so with everything you said in mind and, and those stats, just a real specific question, What what is a healthy time or a healthy age for us to start introducing technology and even for children to start using technology on a more regular basis? What, what are your recommendations there? Well, you know, the American Pediatric Association just lowered the age at which children can use technology, their recommendation from 2 to 18 months, and on the one hand, and decrease the amount of time for children 2 to 5. So let me go over that. Um, at uh, My own personal recommendations are... That under the age of three, I think face chatting with your children or their grandparents or their cousins is fun. I think using technology to strengthen family relationships in that way is fun. I think sharing photos but not constantly photographing your kid, which is a whole other problem with these smartphones, way too much photographing rather than just hanging out, playing, and being and experiencing. Um, But... And what they recommend is co-viewing. And this is the part that often gets lost. And I don't think pediatricians really need to explain this to parents. If you let a child under the age of two or at three or at four watch something on a screen or play a game, what you want to do is do it with them. Co-viewing doesn't mean you sit next to them on the couch with your iPad and they have their own and you're each doing your own thing. Co-viewing means that you play a little and then you talk, you push pause, you talk. Just in the same way that when we read to a child, you know, you read a book like The Runaway Bunny and then you turn to your daughter and say, are you my runaway bunny? And, you know, we talk and it's in the repeating of the narrative and playing with the language that children actually learn language and, and fall in love with literature. 
I think that the most important question is, what are you using technology for? And what are you choosing? So between three and four and five, honestly, the best thing for children to do is to play in the real world. And if you need or they need, you know, a half hour or maybe an hour to, to calm down or, you know, you need a break and you need to cook or whatever and, and they're at a point where they're unable just to play with things that they already have. Uh, there are a lot of good movies and good videos and some good educational TV programs. You know, the, Mr. Rogers is still great. You want things that are slow, where people talk at the pace of spoken word, that are at the bigger the screen, the better, because it's less of a stimulant to kids. And you want it to be educational. You know, wonderful videos and movies about animals, about different cultures, about different races, different religions. The more we can expose our children to the diversity of life, uh, the better. And so those are those are good things. I think that what you want to think about, not in terms so much about what age, but what does technology take away from? You know, are your children reading for pleasure twice a day or being read to for pleasure twice a day? Are they playing outside? Are they doing some kind of chores or something where they contribute? Are they learning how to play on their own? Have quiet time, rest hour on their own. So they learn how to develop... What becomes later is a capacity for solitude and reflective thinking. I think that's so important what you're talking about there. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. But, um, no, that's okay. No, no, no. I was just going to say I think what's so important there is that you know, the, the pushback I hear uh, when, I, when I try to talk about this uh, with parents is that they're afraid somehow their, their kids are going to like fall behind, right? Like if you yeah. look around and every three-year-old or really even two-year-old knows how to – how to play, you know, how to operate a phone, maybe better than their parents, which is a scary thought. Mm-hmm. And then you notice your your child isn't necessarily able to do that. You're thinking, wow, they're gonna, mm-hmm. they're not gonna be, they're not gonna, you know, they're gonna fall behind this technology boom. Right. But but to hear that, what it's act, what's more important actually is that they understand how to soothe themselves and how to have t- times of solitude and and really how to yeah. interact maybe with technology and and less of an isolating way, but more like with their parent or as a learning experience. I think that's just such a, that's a, such a helpful concept. So, um, I, I, def- yeah, yeah. Thank you. No, I think, I think the more people can understand that. And the other thing people really have to understand is that there are tons of very false advertising in the edutainment industry. This is one of the few unregulated industries and it really plays on the vulnerability of parents. Steve Jobs did not love his kids play with tech, and if you look at folks in the tech industry, they choose to send their kids far more than other parents in other professions to schools, uh, to nursery schools and elementary schools that are low tech or no tech, because they understand fully well that the magic of the iPad has nothing to offer a child if they're not more in love with the magic of outdoors and the playground. Mm. And you cannot reboot childhood. There's nothing you cannot learn at 10, 11, or 12 on technology really quickly to catch up to other kids. But you cannot make up for a childhood spent watching TV passively, playing computer games compulsively or excessively, and not learning all the extraordinarily, profoundly important uh, things that we learn from playing and running around, balance, kinesthetic stuff. We have seen a huge spike in four, five, and six-year-old children in America being referred for occupational therapy because they do not have the balance, the dexterity, the capacity to write, to, you know, because they're just, their index fingers are all that's engaged and they're sitting on couches too often playing on devices. It's interesting because, you know, I, I hear me say this. Uh, I was greatly impacted by the book, but like the horror doesn't stop at three or five years old. It actually, yeah, yeah. I mean, some of the yeah. most devastating things, and, and I kind of want to fast forward and age a little bit because I think this is so mm-hmm. important, especially for so many parents whose, whose kids are maybe in that teenage level. I mean, once we got to that yeah. level of the prepubescent and then the, and then the teenager, just the exposure 
the yeah. way that the kids are interacting with each other now, because I think some parents think, well, okay, my kid's 16 or even really, I mean, much younger than that, but 12 or whatever, they're able to handle this. Uh-huh. I don't know a ton uh-huh. about it. They understand these apps. They under, this is how kids communicate uh-huh. these days. And then you, you know, you mentioned some counseling of, of, of children and teenagers, these ages, and just how they are interacting in ways that, uh, it's it's horrific to be honest with you, and I don't know if it has something to do with the ubiquity of pornography or or like you said the the kind of anonymity of of talking to each other um, without you know being face to face. But I'm thinking especially of that what, the, uh, a girl that you were counseling, and she's talking mm-hmm. about the fact that um, you know that that this boy is texting her and asking you know to you know to show her, you know, lewd pictures to expose herself basically. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. In this very crass way. And she's going, you know, that's not who I am. I'm really not that Mm -hmm. way, but she's kind of, on the one hand, she's shamed socially for not participating. And on the other hand, she feels this kind of, um, you know, confusion about, about what she's supposed to do. I, I, it was just really, honestly, it was, um, it was devastating. And so I'd love to hear how two things really, really your experience of that age group, and then maybe how parents can try to protect their kids from, from these things. Well, you know, what, what has really saddened me is that it's been three and a half years since the book came out and everything that I saw in the book, I'm seeing and hearing more of and at a younger age, Mm. it gets younger every year. When parents give children smartphones at 10, 11, 12, 13, with no filters, they are basically giving them the keys to the adult world. Mm. And they're saying, go wherever you want, do whatever you want, and bye. And furthermore, they're sending them out into the world of social networking sites, some of which are wonderful. Some of, a lot of what kids do online is great. It's fun. They're helping each other out. You know, they're sharing stuff. But the bad stuff is really bad. And a lot of the social networking sites, in fact, are set up to be very, um, to be, you know, sites where you can get away and you actually get more popular if you're mean and snarky. Mm. Or you post embarrassing pictures. So the values of home and church and temple and school, be kind, think before you speak, don't do anything that would embarrass anybody, treat other people the way you would want to be treated, be compassionate. Uh, you know, are, Well, those values are not the values of Snapchat or Instagram. Yeah. You know, or you know, the values there, it's cool to be cool. You get likes and followers if you say something mean or post an embarrassing picture. You know, we say be your real self, be authentic. You know, you can hack and fake and be somebody else or pretend to be somebody and start massive rumors and lies. You know, it plays to the the aspects of human nature and vulnerability that adolescents have to deal with, but it's very amplified and to a degree that's unprecedented because of the anonymity of the screen-based communication. And then, you know, with regard to pornography, one of the biggest ironies to me in our country is that we, we have rules and gag rules on, in schools and education about teaching children a, a pro-sexual, sex-positive approach to human sexuality and think that if we don't talk about it, that's going to mean, you know, they will abstain from it. And, you know, all the research, frankly, doesn't support that. And we, at the same time, these same kids are growing up in a profoundly sex-saturated world. And then you add on to that the access on the World Wide Web to a world of pornography that in the industry we call gornography, because not only is it pornographic, it is violent and gory. And what we know now is that the average 11 and 12 and 13-year-old boys especially are getting a huge sex ed online. Their parents are clueless, and it's this pornography. So when I was doing interviews with lovely kids, these are good kids. These are our kids. They are good kids around the country, 30 schools. And, you know, the thing that I would ask kids, is how many of you have devices in your room? And 40% of fourth graders, fourth graders, have iPads or phones 
of computers, laptops, in their bedrooms, and their parents have no clue where they go. It goes up to 60% by middle school. No filters, no one's asking them where they're going. And, you know, parents, on the one hand, I understand, feel like this is new, we didn't grow up with this, but there's so much you can be doing to talk to your children and first put filters on on their phones. You know, if you give a child a phone, be smart about the phone you give them. Don't just hand them a smartphone without filters, without a family contract, without clear rules and regulations about where they can go, where they can't go. And there are so many ways you can set up a child in middle school with a phone that has limited access, that, that does have filters. You have to decide what your values are and what you want to expose your child to at what age. By high school, Kids, most kids need to have smartphones for school because now learning is going on in many schools where they are required to have phones. But through eighth grade, that's where you really want to teach your children step-by-step step in middle school how to use the phone, what's okay, what's not okay, and most of all, have consequences and follow through on them. You know, come up with a contract before you hand your child a phone and, and go over it year to year to year, month to month, if they want new apps. And talk about it and stay calm and talk about your values. Catherine, I think a lot of people are probably going to listen to this. This is kind of my gut is that people are going to listen and they're going to do the very thing that I did when I read your book. And they're going to be feel extremely convicted, probably guilty, a little overwhelmed, even as they start to think if they have kids thinking about young kids. And then if they have teenagers thinking about these very things we're talking about here just to sort of land the plane here, what are what are some ways that we can we can really move forward? You know, how do we stop right. being yeah. slaves to our yeah. devices? And even more, yeah. I would love to hear you know examples of how we can use technology correctly. Because I mean, we don't techno we don't believe that technology in and of itself is bad or evil. Right. We think that it can be used for good purposes, for the sake of flourishing and relationships and all those great things. So I'm curious uh-huh. of you know steps forward. And, and really examples of, of the way technology should and, and could look in, in the home. Got it. So, you know, as hard as this is, and sometimes overwhelming to hear, there's nothing here we can't handle or get better at, and we're going to get better at it. You know, just remember, this is, all, this is still so new. We're living through quite a revolution. It's brand new. Mm. So here are some things to think about. There are critical times in the day for families, so I think if you can put your tech aside, it's really going to strengthen your family connections. The first one is get up a half hour earlier than your kids, do all your emails, everything you need to do, but be offline when your children are getting ready for school. It's a frantic time of day, and your tone of voice and your ability to help them find their hockey stick or their you know, ballet slippers, whatever it is, will be far greater if you're not texting somebody. The next one is in the car to school. Let that be a text-free zone. Let that be a time you either talk or um, are quiet together or listen to some nice music together. But don't be on screens. It's not good for kids before school, and it's not good for you to be on screens with them. When you pick up your children at school, don't be in the middle of a conversation. Just put your phone down before you get to school. Uh, Teachers don't like it when they've got a tap on the window and get your attention, but most of all, kids don't like it. That's the time when they want you to beam on them and say, hi, honey, how is school, and listen to their stories. And then when kids come home, you know, have them come home, get a snack, and play outside, play outside. And when you come home, so often we walk into home from work and we are texting or in a call. We're not really coming home then. We're, we're actually bringing work home. So... Stand outside in the snow and rain, but when you walk in the door, walk in that door and try and walk in the door with the attitude and the new habit that you're not going to be online for the next hour. You know, another new habit we have is we, we walk in the door, we say, hi, honey, hi, kids, how are you? Hug, kiss, I'm just going to go check email. Now, then we disappear. Um, and that's just a habit we have now. But you can break it and just have the habit be that you come home and you are off your devices. You will feel so much better and your whole family will feel better because you'll be connecting and 
doing all those things that families do. You'll be squabbling, you'll be negotiating, you'll be reminding kids about stuff, but most of all you'll be engaged in all the ways that create family cohesion. And no devices at the dinner table. I could always tell the age at which kids learned the word hypocrite <laughs> because I could say my parents are such hypocrites. <laughs> they always take calls at the table and that's really annoying. And the last one is bedtime and bath time. You know, the whole notion of multitasking is a myth. You cannot watch a toddler in the bathtub and be on your smartphone texting. And it's story time. And that's funny. It doesn't matter, again, whether a kid is 6 or 26. When our children say goodnight to us or we say goodnight to them, you know, that's a tender time of day. And they really want us to hug them and beam on them and say goodnight and, and sort of, Bury them into that next transition of going to sleep. So those are all things that, that we can do. And the other thing is that there's new technology to help us manage our technology. There's family plan, there's circle, there are certain apps that will help you and your children decide, you know, when they're going to use tech, what apps they can have, how often, etc. And, um, you know, if you come up with a family contract about technology, that's really helpful. And the other thing I recommend is have some cell-free zones in your house. Let the living room or playroom be a screen-free room because when we don't do that, what happens is, you know, we'll sit down in the living room and we'll think, oh, we're going to just hang out and chat. But then one person picks up a phone and then it's contagious. Everybody else does too. So if you have the expectation, gee, when we're in this room or at the table, we're here with each other, no screens here. That really can be very helpful. And make sure you take time out on the weekend, whether it's, you know, on when you go to church or uh, whatever rituals you have, where you as a family are offline together. And, and whether you're just in the presence of one another in solitude or reading or, or playing board games together or going for a hike, it is so important that you... Save and savior family time together. And as our, when our children are little and when our children are teenagers, it's so important that we do things that the kids pick, that they like to do, that we take turns choosing. And those precious moments become the foundation in which children feel cherished, they feel loved, they feel that they matter, they feel that their parents take great pleasure in their company and those moments create the foundation for which children feel safe and secure and also know that we are there for them when they really need us. Catherine, thank you so much for, for giving us your time today. I, I, I wrote on a piece of paper while you were talking just now to Adam, which is probably the opposite of what we're supposed to do here because that <laughs> means I'm distracted. But I was, but I was listening and I, and I wrote so many nuggets because I just – I really do feel like – you know, you've just given us a, a wealth of information um, that's educational, but also just uh, real wisdom on you know what we can do to at least step take steps forward out of this sort of what what really is a crisis in many ways. Um, yeah. But I think that's going to be really helpful for our people. So I just want to say one more time before we go um, that to, to the listeners that if you have more questions about this, if you find this um, a fascinating conversation and you have not read the book yet, please pick up The Big Disconnect. Um, it, it really will uh, be a wake up call for you and your family. Yeah. Catherine, thank you so much for your time and, and your My wisdom. Pleasure. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. We're now going to enter into our slow take segment. I am here with Jen Wilkin and Braden Taylor, and uh, we're going to take on the topic of Thanksgiving today. Maybe I'm not reading the right things or having the right conversations, but I think that this is a topic that we don't really think or talk much about in terms of the Christian life and how we should view this as Christians and in light of the gospel. It just always seems like this good, fun thing that hits the calendar once a year, and then it comes and goes and that's sort of it. Um, a little bit about these two. Braden is our operations associate at the village, and uh, he did his master's work in history. So excited about the 
perspective he'll bring to this conversation in light of Thanksgiving. And then Jen, who has been on the podcast before, she is an author, teacher, and a minister within the Village Church Institute. So looking forward to this conversation, guys. Um, let's, let's just start with Thanksgiving, thinking about the history. I think that would be a good place to start. Um, where I, All of us probably have a, a, an idea in our heads, a preconceived notion of where Thanksgiving started. And um, I wonder myself if that's even the right thought. So l- let's think about that. Braden, specifically, w- where did Thanksgiving start? Where did it begin? What's the, the, the story there? So there's an idea that Thanksgiving started you know, with the pilgrims in uh, Plymouth Plantation with Native Americans and pilgrims coming together for this, for this Thanksgiving feast that kind of started this idea. But really, you have to go back further to uh, Roman Catholic festivals of Thanksgiving, fasting, and prayer that would be regular throughout uh, the medieval period. And then going forward into specifically an English context when the Anglican Church separated from uh, the church in Rome, uh, they really wanted to reduce the number of festivals because there were just so many. So they really confined it to just a few Thanksgiving, fasting, and prayer kind of days that would happen. And then when the Puritans came over and established Plymouth Plantation, they brought that tradition with them. So a lot of it is this Puritan-backed um, tradition of Thanksgiving, prayer, fasting for important events that would happen in their life. So when the colonists came over initially, it did not go well for them at all. And many of them died. And so after a few years, they finally became self-sustaining and they were able to put together enough food to actually have one of these feasts. And by that time, they had um, built some good relationships with Native Americans and they taught them a lot about farming. And so these are kind of where we get our ideas from, but it really is rooted in a particularly Christian religious festival that um, the Puritans would have uh, partaken in a lot. So would you, so would it be right then to say that it didn't start with sort of the myth that most of us probably have as Americans with uh, the, the mill between the Native Americans in the settlers, um, but it, that was just an example of that particular feast being played out, and that's just one example of it, right? Correct. And so a lot of the, the documentation that we have for that specific instance um, is really just one paragraph in a guy's journal that was um, published in the 1600s and then really lost to history until the 1820s when it was rediscovered. Uh, and so all of that really didn't play into this specific ins, uh, instance didn't play into the formation of of Thanksgiving really at all it it was the festivals and the the Thanksgiving ideology of the puritans that really played into influencing later uh, leaders in the united states and the colonies to use the thanksgiving feasts of the Puritans to unify the colonists during the revolution and to um, celebrate victories. Uh, The first uh, official Thanksgiving proclamation from the government, as you will, of the United States was by the Continental Congress in uh, 1777, right after the Battle of Saratoga was won. And so they put out a proclamation and said, let us celebrate and give thanks to God for this victory that we have won here. And then it moved on uh, from there. So this actually makes a lot more sense than the explanation that I was given as a child in my fantastic public education. <laughs> I I mean, hearing this as part of a rhythm of giving Thanksgiving, like it's part of the, the liturgical life of the church at the time, really kind of makes it all fit together in a way that it doesn't otherwise. And But it kind of makes me think too, I mean, the way that we observe Thanksgiving now, it's like a one-off instead of right. a way of living life according to a regular rhythm. Yeah, we pick we pick one day. We're like, of here's the year. my day to be thankful. Yeah, and so and there's some reasons for that as well that we can we can get to. Yeah, well, I, I'm most interested in and in, granted, I'm sure that there's research and analysis on this particular thing, but I'm curious of what you guys think of. Why do you think Americans particularly have latched on to that particular myth that you know when you think about it in your head initially, it's the pilgrims and the natives 
breaking bread together, having a meal, mm-hmm. um, um, even though we really know that the story between them is a little bit different. Right. <laughs> you know, when we look back to it, most of it didn't involve peace and getting together and sort of setting things aside. So it's probably more just um, opinion or um, assumption, but I'm curious of why have we as Americans lashed onto that particular myth? Do you think that we're trying to make up for something? Do you think we're trying to retell history or not think about the difficult part of history in this sense, but really latch on to the, the happy time of history, um, even though it may not be the, the complete story? Right. So the, the Native Americans' inclusion in the narrative of Thanksgiving really wasn't a thing until the tw- turn of the 20th century. Um, and by that time, uh, Thanksgiving, the, the whole history of it had been a little bit controversial, and it was one of these uh, battlegrounds of religious liberty. Can the government proclaim an official Thanksgiving day and, and say, give thanks to God, or can they not? And so this was a real question that people had to wrestle through. Uh, and so the, the practice really started with Washington and, and Adams, but then died out until uh, Lincoln came along in the Civil War and started doing these proclamations. Well, at, th- at the same time, a lot of um, more liberal movements were going on and saying, no, the, the government can't do this, the government can't do this. And so over the end of the, the 19th century, um, the specific focus of Thanksgiving shifted away from that religious um, practice that we talked about into this virtue formation narrative of, um, you know, creating a a diverse past that may or may not have existed and uh, specifically emphasizing cooperation among people because it was starting to, like you said, it was starting to be taught in the public schools and it was starting to um, be used for children to be able to have this this virtue formation in in their minds as a as a touch point of this is where we've come from these are the events that have happened where it really didn't happen exactly like they portray yeah, and i and i asked that question specifically because i am from oklahoma i grew up in a town called anadarko um which is almost majority Native American, or maybe it is, it's really close. It's really split. So grew up with a lot of Native Americans, different uh, people of different tribes and backgrounds and things like that. But in that community, and now that I don't want to speak for everyone, but this holiday is not always seen the way that we think of it or that I think of it as a middle-class white man, for example. You know, a, a lot of Native Americans either don't really think much of it or they think negatively about it. So it's interesting that it's kind of taken that turn, I think. Well, not only that, but I have this distinct memory of being a little girl in the public school and they're dividing the class to dress up for our little feast day. And half of us were going to be dressed as Native Americans and half were going to be dressed as pilgrims. And (laughs) we all wanted to be pilgrims because we had virtually no frame of reference for the Native American experience, much less how they would fit into this story. And and these stories around Thanksgiving are really the only time, at least when you're young, that you hear about right. Native American peoples at, at all. Right. And so it, it, it just becomes this narrative of creating a uh, – cooperation uh, that that is not repeated in any other point in, in American history. And mm-hmm. so you just go, this this is a dissonance here that we're teaching our kids that it exists, but then it really just doesn't. Mm-hmm. Which means I think, you know, that doesn't negate Thanksgiving by any means, but it certainly is a reminder that we should be aware of that and should be sensitive to that. Um, that Specifically, what we would now say is the false narrative of Thanksgiving um, comes with some baggage, especially for you know Native American brothers and sisters mm-hmm. um, who would have a different perspective on that because they would know that that's just one little bitty narrative in a bigger narrative that is not so pretty and not so peaceful and not so sort of um, happy. Um, and uh, the thing I want to I want to turn the conversation a little bit to Jen. You said something very interesting earlier when you were talking about, or you just kind of recognize that really at its roots, it seems like Thanksgiving is more of this liturgical practice of the church, Mm -hmm. um, this rhythm in the life of the church, which 
kind of raises the question for me. Um, we have Advent, we have Easter, we have Pentecost, we have these things, and you know, our church specifically really practices Advent and uh, Easter more. And you know, we've entered into Lent a little bit, um, not as fully as some denominations would. But where then does Thanksgiving fall on the church calendar? You know, what place does it have in the Christian life? Is, should it be equal to those things? Should it be? Um, is it as important? Should we spend as much time thinking about it? Um, thoughts there? I mean, I think in the life of the believer, I think it's great that we have a national holiday on which we pause to give thanks. I don't know that we can ask a great deal more of the general public. I mean, I think it's great if we could develop a culture of gratitude just within the general public, but we ought to certainly have it within the church. And whether or not we have a season of Thanksgiving that we observe from a liturgical standpoint, I mean, that sounds like a great idea to me. I would say that's probably a part of what should be happening during Lent. If you're a person who observes giving something up, uh, on the one hand, it points us toward our need of God. Each time we sense that that thing is not a part of our daily rhythm, but our need of God should always point us immediately toward our gratitude for God. So part of what I think is missing is just the language of gratitude within the the daily movements of the life of the church. So typically, the way I see this play out the most is when we talk about prayer, people think of prayer almost entirely as a means of making requests. And if we were to build an understanding just of prayer among our people, where we see it as if all we used it for were a means of expressing gratitude toward God, that would be reason enough to pray without ceasing. Or if all we used it for were as a means to express uh, the attributes of God back to Him to give Him glory, that too would be reason enough to pray without ceasing. So I think a lot of this probably revolves around just our understanding of uh, how gratitude ought to be a daily practice for us. And I know we talk a lot about milestones here, and and Thanksgiving really could be one of those milestones right. where anything that happens in the life of the church, in the life of a family or individual that is just significant or or worthy of, of praise really could be marked by a season of Thanksgiving by that family or by the church of, of really entering into prayer and entering into just a celebration of what the Lord has done in those in those instances. Yeah, and I just want to say too, you know, we, we have these holidays, we have these rhythms, we have these practices to not just be something that you do once a year, but it's it's this in the same way that we would come together as the body of Christ to pray together. That doesn't mean that's the only time we pray, but that particular gathering is a way that cultivates and informs a daily, you know, practice mm-hmm. beyond the bigger practice. So Thanksgiving really as Christians, I think we should see it as an opportunity to think heavily and to dwell heavily and, and to be grateful and give that more time than we normally would in our lives in hopes, in hopes that that would then build in a more you know a rhythm of thanksgiving in our lives and that it would ultimately God would use it to to make us more grateful and to more thankful, you know, as people specifically to him and and for what he has done. So, yeah, I think we think of gratitude as uh, an emotional response, but ultimately like most parts of the Christian life, it's also a discipline to be practiced and, and it's a beautiful discipline to be practiced. And you know, the, the faithful report across scripture from start to finish is that the people of God are forgetful. So the more that we can build structures around disciplines to help the forgetful remember, the more faithfully we're, we're fulfilling our duty as the church to help people um, expand their relationship with the Lord through, not just through the way that they feel, but through their practices. Yeah, and I, I'd like to think now about specifically because we're not very far away from Thanksgiving. So no, we're not. Yeah, we're not at all. <laughs> and so those of us who will be hosting, preparing, um, going to events where we're going to be around family members where maybe there's issues or you have the crazy uncle that people always talk about, um, we're already starting to think about those things and we're about to be there. So now that we've kind of talked about, you know, the history and where it stands potentially in the life of a Christian. And and that might look a little bit different for different people. But I want to think now about, you know, as we enter into Thanksgiving here soon, what are some, what are some just encouragements for, you know, our listeners 
about ways they can prepare, ways they can think about it. Jen, you wrote a, a blog a few years back specifically that kind of looks at the difference or it doesn't kind of, it looks at the difference between hospitality and entertaining. And, and that blog specifically resonates with this holiday because mm-hmm. there's a lot of that happening, a lot of hosting and cooking and having people over. And I think the very things we're talking about mm-hmm. in terms of being grateful and not really missing this opportunity for what it is, um, a lot of that hinges on particularly what you're seeing in that blog in terms of really looking, going into Thanksgiving, thinking about how you can be hospitable right. versus how you can entertain. Um, talk about that because that, that blog, I, I loved that that blog and it was really important, I think. so. Yeah, I think it all depends on whether you're looking toward that day as a day when you will be hosting an event or a day where you will be hosting people. And as long as you can keep a people focus on it, and then, I mean, it's Thanksgiving, right? So we should all be walking into it with a spirit of gratitude, but gratitude commits itself to graciousness and civility, which are two pretty key factors for any family gathering, certainly. And I was thinking about this this morning, you know, here we are just on the other side of a very acrimonious election cycle. And you know that everyone who's going to be sitting at your Thanksgiving table did not vote the same way, did not see the election the same way. So I think this Thanksgiving, perhaps more so than others in the past, is going to be an opportunity for Christians in particular to think through how they can be a gracious and civil host toward those with whom they share primary relationship but don't share all the same views. So it's a good year, I think, to think strategically through how am I going to shepherd the conversation? How am I going to um, think through the way that the day will flow in a way that everyone feels welcomed and able to converse and share space on a level where we are able to focus on gratitude and the things that we uh, are united by? Yeah, and I know specifically, and I probably say this to myself every year um, because I get to Thanksgiving and it just seems like it passes me by and I just lose the opportunity in many ways. And so this probably seems so simple, but you know, my encouragement would be to be prayerful um, Mm -hmm. for opportunities because like you're saying, in some cases it may be that we're sharing a meal with other Christians, but if nothing else, we're probably going to have a difference of beliefs on certain things with those Christians. And then even more, there's probably a good opportunity that there will be people there who aren't Christians. And we need to be thinking about specifically how we can have conversations or how we can push conversations, you know, to Jesus, to the gospel and, you know, and really being prayed up and ready for that and not just be in the moment and having to react to that, but come into it intentional looking for that rather than just showing up and and trying to make the best of it. Um, So I I think that's really important myself. Any, any other things about specifically, I feel like the thing I always hear is crazy family members, drama, any words or thoughts about how we would encourage people to think about that or to go about that um, as we sort of close this conversation. I think Christian gratitude is different than non-Christian gratitude. And I think one of the ways that we model that is that, you know, for the for the unbeliever, gratitude tends to center around good things that have happened um, or um, things that happened to, to us but didn't happen to other people. It's sort of a, the whole, man, I'm glad I dodged that or, wow, things are going really great for me here. And, and Christian gratitude is much more expansive than that. It's grateful for hard things as well as for times of comfort. And so when those kinds of ideas are expressed around a table, I think that can carry a strong gospel message without handing out a tract or sitting down and, you know, talking about, hey, do you know Jesus? Although those are important conversations to have as well. Uh, And I think that when we sit around a table with people who aren't all coming from the same place, it's so important for us to remember that we're called to bear with people in their weakness, which means we don't take the bait every time someone lobs it out there in a conversation and that we probably have a plan for how we're going to redirect things in a manner that everyone is served uh, by that time at the table together in more ways than just tryptophan and the famous green bean casserole with the French onions on top. Yeah, I think, you know, I was just in this saying, I feel like when we talk about holidays, specifically Advent here at the Village, Matt talks a lot about not missing the substance or, or Mm -hmm. basically 
trading the the shadow for mm-hmm. the substance. Mm-hmm. And so I think coming in prayerful, coming in intentional, coming in grateful, you know, already not waiting till that day mm-hmm. to, to think about how your heart should be grateful will help us really make the most of this holiday and and not miss, you know, the substance over the shadow, the shadow of being good food, hanging out, maybe watching football and all those sorts of things that people do. Um, but yeah, lots of good stuff here, guys. Uh, really thankful for the conversation. As always, if there's anything you heard us talk about on the show that you'd like to know more about, you can find details on our website at thevillagechurch.net. Just look at the episode descriptions on our podcast page. On our next episode, we will have Brian Fisher of the Human Coalition to have an optimistic conversation about the topic of abortion. If you have questions, let us know on social media using the hashtag AskTVC. See you next time. God bless. God bless.